You're listening to audio from Gospel Collective Church. If you'd like to check out additional resources or learn more about us, please visit gcclex.com. It is a good morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Connor Woods. I am our next-gen associate and our media director here at GCC. If you got your Bibles, and I really hope you do, uh, go ahead and flip to Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, if you haven't grabbed a copy of one of these... Uh, this may be the last one left. Uh, these are uh, scripture journals. Um, and so we are a, not just a church, we should be a people um, that loves to study and to dwell on and wrestle with the text. And so grab one of these. They're only $5. Uh, if there's any left, if there's none left, this is the only one. Um, and we can arm wrestle for it, I guess. So uh, be sure to pick one of those up. Hebrews chapter 2 is a fascinating text. I think uh, the text could really just preach itself. Like I could read it and we could read it together and then I could pray and we'd be done. Uh, And uh, I know some of y'all might really enjoy that uh, for time's sake, but uh, there's some really interesting, amazing, awesome things that I want to dive into together. Some things that, man, just really excite me. And so I just want to let you know, I am excited about this text. When Eric told me that I'd be preaching on Hebrews 2, he said, man, I'm really jealous that you get to preach this chapter. He's like, I, I love this chapter. Uh, and a while back, I was like, yeah, I'm sure like every pastor like loves to preach the word, right? At least they should. Uh, and then I read it again, and I was like, oh man, he was not kidding. Uh, and so here's what, here's what I've been praying for, hoping for over uh, the past several days is that this text would land on us in such a way that we get so stirred up, so excited that it bewilders us. I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit uses this text in your life and in my life and does something really special. And so let's dive in. Hebrews chapter 2 Uh, Before we even start verse 1, I think we need to talk about chapter 1. So last week, Eric went through chapter 1. We walked through the text together. We saw that kind of the main theme of that passage was that Jesus is superior. He is greater than. He is above the prophets, and he's above the angels in all forms, in all aspects. And so that was the main uh, kind of theme of that text. And then we get to verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That word, therefore, I just want to share something with you. When you see therefore in the text, it is describing, it's kind of laying before you, hey, this is what what you just read, this is what it's there for. All right, so there's a little mental cue. Every time you see therefore, it's telling you, the author's telling you, this is why I just said everything I just said. So therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. So they're saying, hey, because Jesus is superior, because Jesus is greater than, he is above than, he is higher than the prophets, because he is higher than the angels or any spiritual beings. In chapter 1, it's highlighting kind of two 
uh, two kind of authority figures. The prophets uh, would be kind of the ultimate authorities outside of Yahweh himself for the Jewish people. They kind of look to the prophets. Their word is of the highest authority. And the Gentiles, the pagans, the non-Jews, would look to the spiritual realm. Right? These spiritual beings, the various gods that they served, that they are the highest authority. And so the author is saying, hey, because he's greater than the prophets, because he's greater than the angels or any sort of spiritual beings, that we must closely guard our own priority of Jesus in our lives. This isn't reserved for some other people, but that you and I, in our own lives right now, must closely guard our priority of Jesus in our lives. This is a core belief of the Christian faith, that Jesus is superior. He is greater than. He is above. He is more powerful than all things even ourselves. The Western ideology of individualism, of self-sufficiency, is 100% incompatible with following Jesus. There is no room for self-sufficiency or individualism in the Christian faith. To follow Jesus is to day in, to day out, reject ourselves as superior and to actively make Jesus superior. It's not just a mental exercise. right? What does make, making Jesus superior look like? It's not a mental exercise. It's not rehearsing a set of platitudes. It's not singing. It's not uh, any of these things in and of themselves. Making Jesus superior means actively denying ourselves by picking up our crosses and obeying his word. Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. I I think at times we water down what it means to follow Jesus. What does it actually mean? Again, it's not a set of platitudes. It's not even a particular prayer. Like if the the, author is going to later touch on what is the foundation of our, our faith or our salvation? What is the foundation? Like, what is the the core element? Everything that is built upon. And friends, the author doesn't say it's a prayer. And so if if you are basing your, hey, I follow Jesus because I prayed a prayer, and that's kind of where where my my understanding of salvation is, then friends, the book is going to say, the Bible is going to say, you're not a Christian. That this is not what the faith is based upon. If your life is not continually, um, I am actively, to the best of my ability, following Jesus, making him superior, not perfectly. The Bible understands we're not going to be perfect. But if that's not an active practice or trajectory of your life, then the book's going to say you're not a Christian. We have to get right what following Jesus is This is why making him superior over all things, including our lives, I would say most importantly, our own lives, is so important. It's because the author is going to stress what happens if we we don't make him superior. 
and we'll start to drift away. You know, the, the word drift in this text is the only time in the whole Bible that this particular word is used. Only time. And so when I, when I see a, a, that a word is kind of one occurrence, I, I, me, and I encourage you, if you ever notice that or see that or it's in a note somewhere, like draw in because the author's trying to do something here. So why, why this word for drift? Why not fall or plummet or be cannonballed? Well, it's because the, the Greek here, it means to flow beside or to glide aside, like from or to. The author is highlighting here that drifting, this act of drifting, is not quick. And it's not, a, it's not like a flash flood. That's not the picture here. It is a slow and seemingly undetectable process. So the enemy, he's, he's rarely trying to pull like a, a big gotcha on you. Although that does happen. But rarely is he trying to jolt you out of the faith. It's almost like we're being um, lulled to sleep. Like we're just having this lullaby sung over us. We're being put under anesthesia. Um, Funny story about anesthesia in my life. Uh, When I got my wisdom teeth taken out in high school, uh, someone told me before, you know, I've heard that people with red hair deal with anesthesia differently. And I was like, okay, whatever, it's a myth, or I guess you're trying to scare me, or I don't know. I wasn't scared. Um, and so I went in, and, you know, they're giving me the anesthesia, counting backwards down, and I'm out. Uh, and then I wake up. But they're not done. I, there's instruments and doctors, and I'm a little confused. And they're like, oh, you woke back up, we're going to put you back under. And reflecting on that, I'm like, one, who, like, walked away from, like, making sure I was still under? Uh, and, and two, how did that happen? I don't have answers for either of those. But going into anesthesia, I had to consent to it. There was an active, okay, Connor agrees, we're going to put him under anesthesia, and this is what is going to happen. And the same is true for our lives. Like, we don't subtly or um, non-consciously make Jesus less superior. We are actively making him less superior when we put other things above him. And so there is a, there's a consenting nature to making Jesus less superior in our lives. And I think there's also a, a, this recovery process when we realize, oh, hey, I've not been making Jesus superior in my life. And when you wake up, if you've ever been under anesthesia, it's not like a you know, pop up and, all right, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to start my day. Like, someone has to drive you home. Sometimes they put you in a wheelchair. Like, there, there's this a recovery process that takes place, a reacclimation process. And so drifting here in the text is referring to a, a gradual, slow lowering of Jesus' superiority in our lives. And when we recognize, like, oh, dang it, like, I have, I have made fill-in-the-blank more superior than Jesus. I've made... My, you know, I'm in my job. I put my job above Jesus. I put my money above Jesus. My possessions above Jesus. I put my spouse above Jesus. I put my kids above Jesus. I put my comfort above Jesus. When we realize that we have disregarded the superiority of Jesus as Lord of our lives, we need to, to the best of our ability, hazily, groggily get up and 
out of our medically induced slumber and run to Jesus. Like you need to, you need to fall down a couple of times. You need to maybe have someone get you in a wheelchair and get you there. We got to get to Jesus. We reacclimate ourselves. We recover from this realization in three ways. The Word, spending time in His Word, spending time in prayer, and spending time in community. It really is that simple. If you were to track your life, you were to plot your life and look at the times where you have drifted. And listen, let's not pretend like we, like we haven't. Everyone in this room has. You've been a Christian for 10 minutes or 10 years. We've, we've all drifted away because we put things above Jesus. And so if you were to look at your life and, and look at the times where you've made things more of a priority, more superior than Jesus, I would argue it's probably some sort of retreat from one of, if not all of these things. From spending time in His Word, from prayer, from community. You've retreated from prayer because you're ashamed of sin in your life. You've retreated from spending time in His Word because it's difficult to read. Or it's, maybe it's a little boring, right? Maybe you started your Bible reading plan for the year, right? And you get to Leviticus and you're like, I'm done. Like there's, I cannot read this. I do not understand anything. I get you. We've, we, I've been there. You've, maybe you've retreated from Christian community because of busyness in your life or bitterness towards other people. In church, we are not called to retreat from Jesus. We are called to run towards Jesus. Matthew said, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we make Jesus less superior than fill in the blank, we will drift away. There is no manageable side of sin. Like you cannot manage your sin. You cannot manage the, the idols, if we can call them that. We don't like to say that word because we associate that with like gold statues. And an idol is just anything you put above Jesus. And so if we think we can somehow um, kind of keep Jesus over here and have my thing above him, friends, it's not going to work. Like Israel had Yahweh. They had um, the pillar of fire. They had the pillar of smoke. They had the uh, Ark of the Covenant. They had His presence physically dwelling among them. They had prophets speaking right to them from God. They saw the Red Sea pardon. Like they experienced God in profound ways. They knew a lot of things about God, but they did not regard Him as superior. You're called to move towards Jesus. So this whole idea of making Christ superior, it's going to set up the whole chapter, really the whole book of Hebrews. It's a, it's a consistent theme. Um, and you may be realizing we're like 10 minutes in. This is just verse 1. Just want to, I only ended like seven minutes late on in the first service, but uh, we got a little bit more time here, so who knows. Uh, but picking up in, in verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? 
It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witnesses by signs and wonders of various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We see here the danger of neglecting salvation. The danger of neglecting salvation. So what's this message the, the author in Hebrews is talking about? Well, there's a variety of messages. If we were to read the Old Testament and the New Testament, where both angels and prophets alike are declaring uh, the word of God to the people. And we see in uh, Luke 2, they come to declare that, that Jesus is born. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So that's the, the, the message. He's talking about um, kind of a, a whole scope, a whole um, variety of messages. So what does he mean when he says they proved to be reliable? Well, simply, they just they came true. Every prophecy about Jesus was fulfilled, and everything the angels or the prophets said came true. God fulfilled his promises, and is to this day, which we'll talk about in later, is fulfilling his promises. Like God is not active in the Bible and not active today. He is continually fulfilling his promises. So it proved to be reliable because it came true. But what is the author talking about when he says a just retribution? What's he, what's he pointing to? What is he referencing? The author of Hebrews is very well versed, we can tell, by the way he uses uh, the, the language, the way he calls back to uh, Hebrew scriptures, the references that he uses. He is, he is a master of the scriptures. And, and because we know that, we can tell that from the text, we can understand that, oh, he's calling back to the law in Deuteronomy chapter 30. So read with me here in verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. So what the author is saying here, hey, there is a just retribution, meaning that, that there is a consequence for sin. There is a consequence for disobedience. There is a consequence for not going on the path that God has laid before his people. Because what God has said, as we see from Deuteronomy 30 19, is, hey, if you do this, then you will experience blessing. And if you don't do this, it's not going to go well for you. This is, not a, this is not a prosperity gospel as we would understand it in contemporary terms. God is not saying, hey, ask anything that you want of me and I will just give it to you. That's not, God's not a genie in a bottle. That's not what he's doing in the Old Testament. That's certainly not what he's doing today. What God is saying is if you abide in me, if your hearts are wrung out before me, if you come before me and you say, God, all of my life is yours, I want to follow you with all of my being, then you will experience blessing. And if you don't, one, that's your choice. And two, it's just not going to go well for you. Friends, the, the framework today for our salvation it's very similar, although there's one important caveat in that we do not follow the law. Like our aim is not to 
follow a list of do's and don'ts. We follow a person. We follow Jesus. Jesus said he came that we may have a full life. You know, I hear people all the time say, I just want to live life to the fullest. I'm like, great, Jesus wants the same thing for you. It just looks vastly different. God's not trying to rob you of any experience. Jesus says in John 15 that he came that you may have the fullest amount of joy. And later we see the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Like, who doesn't want those things? Like, don't, aren't we, isn't like our whole bent towards trying to find those things, but not the way that God wants to have us find them? We're trying to find love, we're trying to find joy, we're trying to find peace, but it's always like some workaround. It never works. God is laying before us the choice of blessing or consequences. And I can say this with full confidence, God wants to bless you. That's not a prosperity gospel thing. Like he, he wants to bless you. I can't read when Jesus says, hey, I want to give you joy. I want to give you life. I can't read the fruit of the Holy Spirit and say, yeah, I, don't, I just don't think God's in the blessing business. He is. And the choice is blessing or consequences, life or death. Either neglect salvation by paving our own way and accept the consequences of our sin, which is death, or follow Jesus and get life to the fullest. The author, he's asking a rhetorical question. Like, how are we going to escape the just dual penalty of our sin without Jesus? How are we going to escape the penalty without salvation? And the point he's making is, you can't. You can't escape it. Like, we need that salvation. You know, I think we, we tend to think that, no, we, we really don't need that salvation, that we can, you know, earn God's favor or you know, just do enough to feel like, okay, we're in good standing. The good outweighs the bad. We've gone to, maybe we've gone to church enough. We've, we've given enough money away. We've served enough. And we often lose sight of what the real standard is. We often look horizontally, right? We look to one another. Like, oh, I'm better than that person. All right, at least my sin's not that bad. Or maybe like, oh, man, they're really killing it right now. Like, I wish I was more like this person. And we start to compare ourselves against them and not Jesus. And we need to look vertically to the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. The example we have to look at is not one another, but it is Jesus. I just think we've convinced ourselves that we can, like, outsmart sin. Like, we've out-educated sin. We love education here uh, in America. And don't get me wrong, education is great. But education is not going to help you and your heart's posture to sin. When we accurately measure ourselves, when we put ourselves up against Christ as the correct standard, we are exposed. Our sinfulness is exposed, and that doesn't feel good. Like, just full honesty, that does not feel good. We, we don't like feeling seen for what we really are. And when I measure my life up against Jesus' perfect, sinless, death-defeating life, it's no contest. And friend, like, you don't have a shot at Jesus. I love you, but you got no shot. Your life in Jesus' life. This is what Robert E. Galley says. He's a pastor in the Long Hollow Baptist Church in Tennessee. He says, if you think that your salvation, uh, if, you, if you think it's your salvation that is based on 
good works or your merit, when you stand before the Lord Jesus one day and give an account for your life, you're going to put your life forward as a representation and you're going to put your good life up against Christ's perfect life. It fails miserably. See, what you need is for Jesus to hide you behind his cross so that the Father, who's the judge, doesn't see you, but sees Christ. You need Jesus to be your advocate on that day to stand up for your sin. I'll add to that, like, not only will Jesus stand up for your sin, he will say to the Father, he said, Father, I have the evidence for their innocence. Their retribution debt, the punishment they rightly deserved for sinning, against you. I have paid that debt. That balance is zero. They are now spotless and clean because my sin-cleansing blood covers them. The author's rhetorical question, how will we escape if we neglect it? The point he's making is, we can't. We need that salvation. It's this good news, what we call the, the gospel. It's only good in stark contrast to the bad news, which is when we choose to pave our own way, when we choose to face the consequences for our sin and not follow Jesus as superior over our lives, that we will spend eternity in hell. That we will spend eternity separated from God's blessing and goodness forever. And don't get it twisted. Like, it's a hell of our choosing. You don't just fall into hell, friends. We choose. We choose it. Jesus' proclamation of the gospel that he has come to establish his kingdom, to rule and reign as the perfect king, to restore all things and to create a new people who have repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, following him by the power of the Holy Spirit. This message was accompanied by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And it is this message that contains the key to our salvation that we must never, ever, even as followers of Jesus, neglect Forget, overlook this great salvation. Verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. I love this passage. You see that Jesus is the ultimate ruler of all things. Period. In a sentence. Here again, we cannot get away from the fact that Jesus is superior, that he has authority. And this is, the author's pulling from Psalm 8 here. Again, this is, there's no new ideas in the text. When Christ came to earth, he was made lower than the angels. Now, that is confusing, and before you call me a heretic, let's unpack what that means. What we're not saying is that Jesus was somehow less than in his God status than the angels. He's not any less powerful. He's not any less God. He was still a member of the Trinity. He was made lower than the angels in, the, in that he accepted, willingly accepted, temporary human limitations by being incarnate. He took on flesh and was naturally, physically limited. So, I hope this is not surprising. Angels don't have bodies, human bodies. They're not bound by skin and bones. They don't die to uh, our knowledge is from the text. Now, this, this taking on of human flesh, it, was, it wasn't without a cost to Jesus. There were actually significant costs. 
Philippians 2 unpacks this a little more, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is where we get the the term kenosis, that Christ emptied himself or gave up certain attributes when he took on flesh. And I just want to pause for a second because I think we overlooked the fact that Jesus willingly took on flesh. Like was not compelled, was not forced to. Jesus saw the mess that is humanity, the very beings that rebelled against him and continue to rebel against him, And he decided to step into our brokenness and accept the human limitations of flesh and blood. That's fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating. But why? I love love that you have that question. I'm just going to answer it in a few more verses. So hold on to that. I set that aside. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. And the world was his to rule because he proved in the resurrection that he had power over sin and death. And he has been given complete glory and honor, ruler of the age to come, and is over all things now and forever. Verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present we do not see, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. This is fascinating. Even though Christ rules the world, all of creation is still bent towards disobedience. So we, we, right now, you and I, we can't see, we can't fully see that the world, that everything in it is truly under Christ's reign. It's not hard for us to draw this conclusion when we think of human evil and injustice. But I don't, I don't think we often think this includes the all of the created order, not just you and me. Remember, Jesus calmed a storm by just telling it to stop. The whole created order is under his control. And yet we see every year there's hurricane season, wildfire season, tornado season. Like, we see the earth raging. The entire created created order has been affected by sin and it thrashes around in this disobedience but let me encourage you this morning day by day that leash is getting shorter and shorter and shorter as we draw nearer to when Christ returns Satan realizes his scheming his trickery his manipulation his deception his lies his corruption of what was once God's perfect world he realizes that's Coming to a close, like that that chapter is ending. Jesus rose from the grave and Satan realizes he has an enemy he, in fact, cannot defeat. The perfect king of kings and lord of lords who will return one day on on a white horse to execute perfect justice. And so while we may not see it, while we may not understand it, while we, our experience in life communicates the contrary, that everything is out of whack and God can't get a grasp on it. Everything is under his control. And in his perfect timing, he will return to eradicate evil, sin, and suffering. That's good news this morning. Verse 9. 
But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he who for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. So Christ's life, death, and resurrection is the foundation of our salvation. So that question that I asked you to hold on to earlier, why would Jesus willingly take on flesh? Why would Jesus step into brokenness? Why would Jesus accept these limitations? Well, because he saw it fitting. He saw it fitting. No one had to convince him. No one had to force him. Jesus saw it fitting. And because everything is made for Jesus and by Jesus, that makes him the perfect founder of our salvation. Then another question comes up. Why suffering? Why couldn't Jesus take on flesh and, and bones and blood and just take us all away? Why did he have to suffer? Why did he need to be made perfect? Was he not already perfect? Again, great questions. He was perfect. But one thing that the, the Trinity had not experienced on a physical level was what it physically meant to be human. Now again, it's important to know that it's not that like they were unaware of suffering. It's not like they were unaware of what it meant to be human or the human experience. I mean, we're created by God. But they had not stepped into physically creation like this. God is perfect and he is God and so is Christ. And so this is mind-bending reality that God didn't have to suffer, but chose to. He wanted to become familiar with the human experience. Remember, like, we just downplay the humanness of Jesus. Like, yes, exalt him as Lord and as God, absolutely. But he was also human. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was tired. He was happy. He was sad. Distressed, depressed, nervous, elated. He was not this emotionless theological brainiac. He was a man who wept and laughed. He experienced the whole scope of human emotions and physical limitations. And the fact that he knew what it was like to be human. And to make the insane decision to step into the brokenness of the world and experience it is phenomenal. Like tell me of a God who does this. His perfection was one of experience. It wasn't related to his divinity. It wasn't related to his sinfulness. So this is why the author of Hebrews would later go on to write for, uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, if Jesus never stepped into humanity, you and I can make the case, God, you have no idea what's going on down here. You've never been where I am, but Jesus has. Verse 11. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
Because he chose to suffer like us, he is not ashamed to be associated with us. Oh, what a glorious truth. He's not ashamed to have you as part of his family. He wants you to be part of his family. Like, think about Rahab. We cover this in our Women of Advent series. Rahab, a pagan prostitute, about the furthest you can get from the people of God. We see in the story, God commands Joshua to send some spies in. He sends some spies. They end up at Rahab the prostitute's house. The text doesn't tell us how they got there or why they got there, but I can draw some conclusions. But what we see is not what we expect. Rahab hides them, keeps them protected, and then makes some of the most profound theological statements in the entire book of Joshua. She recognizes that the God of Israel is the one true God. And so rather than being wiped out with the rest of the city, God makes a way for her to be grafted into his family, into Israel. And he's doing the same thing today. He's doing the same thing today. So I don't know what you've done. I don't know what your life has looked like. I don't know how rough or easy it's been. I don't know what you think disqualifies you from being loved by God. But friend, let me tell you, it's not outside the bounds of his love and mercy and grace. You cannot sit out sin the cross of Christ. Like, there is at the same time nothing you can do to earn God's love and nothing you can do to keep God from loving you. It's in the fact that you are made in his image. That's the, that's the foundation for why he loves us. Because we are made in his image. He loves you. He made you. Nothing you can do can change that fact. He chose to suffer and he rejoices. Heaven rejoices. The angels rejoice when we surrender to him and are grafted, when we are adopted into his family. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So friend, Jesus has destroyed not just the author of death, but the fear of death itself. And he, you know, when we, we talk about death in, in the West, we don't really focus on it too much. Other cultures around the world are a little bit more comfortable with death. Well, we, we just we don't we want to get away from it as much as possible, right? We say things like, this person passed away or they're no longer with us. And an element of that is really important. Because it's pointing us to the reality that death is not normal. That God does not desire for us to die. And Jesus experienced his own death, but also the death of a friend. So he knows what death is like, both from his own experience and as, a, as part of the human experience. But at the same time, where I think that's important to want to avoid death and want to avoid talking about death because it, I think it's theologically significant. At the same time, I think there's a lot of fear surrounding death. That's natural. But I think we perpetuate that. We dwell a lot on 
you know, X, Y, Z is deadly or just that persistent thought of, you know, my life is at risk at, at any given time. Friends, that's not, God does not want that for you. And if you're plagued with those thoughts, then like reach out to someone. Reach out to us on, on, on the welcome card. Because in the text, in, in verses 14 and 15, we see that Jesus does not desire for you to stay there. He actually wants to liberate you from that fear. And that liberation is rooted in the fact that death is destroyed. Like death is gone for us who are in Christ. Will we die? Yes. But we have a hope that is unshakable. He's not only defeated death. He said, you don't have to be enslaved by the fear of it. Verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Plainly, Jesus took on flesh to save us. Like his mission was to establish a kingdom and to redeem, to save a people as new members of that kingdom. Again, pointing it back to, to chapter 1. Jesus didn't come to serve the angels. Right? They're awesome spiritual beings. We look to them like, man, that, they're incredible and a little terrifying. But he has a special care. He has a special affection for humanity that pales in comparison to the rest of the created order. Like, I think sometimes we think like, you know, angels, we were talking about this a little bit in community group. If, if angels are created to worship God, and like, why does God need us, right? He's got people around the throne singing his praise. Why does he need us? And that's a great question. Because he doesn't. He doesn't need us. But friends, he wants us. Like, let that, let that just sit for a second. He doesn't need you. He wants you. He desires you. He longs for you to know him. He wants us. This is why he talks about Abraham. If we travel all the way back, the story of Abraham, the forefather of the faith, God says, hey, I'm going to establish a, a people uh, from your line that's going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And we can read that, and, and the Jews certainly read it with this understanding of, okay, the, the scope for God's people is limited to this particular family and these particular people, namely the, the Hebrews. And so when Jesus shows up, and as a Jew, he starts associating with tax collectors and prostitutes, and he starts eating at their houses, and he starts calling them to follow him and repent the Jews are like, whoa, 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 these people are out of bounds. And why are you wasting your time with them? Why are you associating with these people? They don't like it. But all of his earthly ministry and to this day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is drawing a new people. Like it doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is, what race or uh, family you come from. Like Jesus is pulling just from everywhere all across humanity to 
his family. And he's, he's pulling those who are humble, who fall on their face before God, cry out to salvation, who recognize that Jesus is superior over all human authority, over all spiritual beings, even their own lives. And he's creating a new people whose common identity is not where they live, what family they're a part of, what race they are, their certain interests that they have. He's creating a new people based solely around the person and work of Jesus. Verse 17 reinforces that Jesus had to become like us in order to effectively make propitiation for our sins. And if that word confuses you, it did me as well. Uh, it was actually one of the first papers that I wrote in seminary. It was about um, this, this word propitiation in its various forms. I'm not going to make you read it. Probably not very great. Um, but uh, essentially it means to make atonement or proper payment for sin. And atonement means to accomplish forgiveness. Like it is done. Like forgiveness has been extended. So our sins are forgiven by the atoning work of Jesus. And we'll talk about propitiation, we'll talk about atonement later on in Hebrews. But as I was studying this word, the Holy Spirit awakened me to the fact that Jesus chose to be the propitiation. Again, I, I just can't get away, I don't think the author can get away, the fact that Jesus chose these things. Like, you think the Romans killed Jesus? You think the Romans nailed his hands and his feet to the cross? Like, Jesus let them. He allowed them to do that. Because Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, Willing, he willingly chose to make atonement for your sin and then defeated that sin and death by resurrecting from the grave. And that process is perfect and complete. The balance is zero. And in verse 18, we see that it's not just a one and done, you get your get out of hell free card and you're good, but Jesus wants to, but that land wants to stick with us to the end. So verse 18 as we close. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He is our help in temptation and suffering. The one who suffered and was perfect, perfected, Jesus, the one who, who suffered and was perfected, can perfectly help us in our suffering. It doesn't say he might help us. It doesn't say he could possibly help us if we're good enough. It says he is able, implying that the onus is on us to lay our lives down before him and say, Jesus, I need you. I need your salvation. And just remember, salvation is so, so much more than spending eternity in heaven. If that's, your, if that's like your scope for salvation and what this whole following Jesus thing is, friend, I got, there's a lot more. There's a lot more. It is the pathway to a present hope. It is the pathway to a present peace, a present joy. And culminates, comes to a crescendo when we reach the new heavens and the new earth. The transformation process. The work that God wants to do in you. That reconciliation, it begins here in this life. Don't, don't hold out on Jesus. Don't hold out on him, because he did not hold out on you. And so I want to ask you this morning, have you stepped into that salvation, this salvation? Not some prayer, 
not some uh, commitment that you made that I'm going to be really good and I'm going to follow the Ten Commandments. Spoiler alert, you broke them. We all have. Have you stepped into this salvation? Salvation offered to you is not based on your merit, but on God's mercy. God doesn't pursue you because you've gotten his attention or won his affection. It's because you've been handcrafted by him and for his glory and for your joy. Because he desires for you to know him and his greatness, to bask in it, to be blessed by it. And then he wants to call you to be part of what he's doing to bring this new people together. To be part of the redemption of the entire world. And this salvation, this relationship that we are brought into with our creator, man, it is something that angels could only dream about. And it's a salvation that we cannot afford to neglect. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for your word. What an encouragement this morning from Hebrews 2. God, to see this glorious salvation that you have laid before us. To see that you willingly went to the cross because you thought fitting to die for us. May we not lose the, the due glory and honor and reverence that is owed to you. And so, Father, I pray that as we continue our worship in a time of singing, that our hearts would be true and honest and before you and exposed, and that we wouldn't run from being exposed of our sin, but we would run to you, the author, founder of our faith. We love you, and we pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.